Hello and welcome to another episode of the Leathercraft Masterclass podcast with me, Phil. Today's podcast is, what, a day late, so apologies guys. Um, I've always gone on about how it's going to be every Friday at 6. I'll tell you what, when you work for yourself, one thing you will notice is the days become meaningless after a while and when the work piles up, and you have a lot of things to do, you forget what day it is, I literally, I'm not even joking, I thought it was Wednesday. <laughs> then I looked at the time, and it was almost four o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, and I don't know where the time has gone, and I had a dilemma. What do I do? Either quickly rush a podcast, get it out there, just talk about something, just make sure that you're consistent with your times, which is important, or make it 24 hours later and then give some content which is actually meaningful. So I decided on the latter, hence Saturday at 6pm. So apologies for that if you were waiting and you were sitting there on a Friday night waiting for it to come out and you ended up sitting there in tears uh, drinking a bottle of wine by yourself. Uh, my fault completely, forgot the time, uh, there's me, transparent as ever. <laughs> so that's the situation. So moving on, this is a, a little bit of a controversial podcast, actually. I'm going to be discussing some things that might be a little uncomfortable or might get you uh, maybe not upset, but a little miffed, perhaps. But you know what? It's I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be open. I'm going to give my thoughts and feelings. No facts here, though. So just so that you know, everything I say is not fact. Always, you know, test things out yourself. Come up with your own conclusions. Do your own research. But hey... Uh, these are just my opinions. The first thing I want to discuss in this week's podcast is tools. And I'm actually going to do a tool review in a second on something that I've received that I think is phenomenal. But I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the artisans, so-called artisans, and they are in a certain way, producing tools um, on Instagram and a few other platforms, but mainly Instagram. What I see a lot of is people producing tools that are ridiculously good looking, but have very little function and usually quite expensive too. And I see this in so many places and you'll get, you know, like a, I don't know, a skiving knife or an awl or some kind of cutting out tool, whatever it is, with some kind of delicious looking handle made from a very unusual or rare material in a funky color, um, potentially, you know, high-end steels and all that kind of thing. And I've actually had, uh, on a couple of occasions, the chance to use some of these. And they are beyond bad. And of course, I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to start calling people out and things like that. No, that's their business. And I appreciate the entrepreneurial aspect of doing what you love to do and producing goods. But just like myself, I'm always open to criticism. I'm always open to people of a different opinion who may think I'm completely wrong about something or, you know, something that I've produced that isn't quite right. I'm always open to looking at things from a different perspective. And that's how we grow. So obviously I'm not going to name names, but I just see these tools so often. And when it comes to using them, they are beyond terrible. Now, I, I get that people want to, you know, look towards different tools from what's normally available on, on the market, like say Blanchard tools. I mean, a lot of people talk about their quality has gone downhill, but they are still a very good tool company. Don't get me wrong. But many people want to chase the new thing. I mean, many years ago, I was involved in the fitness industry. And what actually works versus what gets marketed are two completely different things. So people are always looking towards the new thing, what's better, what's different, and then they want to invest or buy into that. And I think that's very much the case with leather tools. So you will get these, you know... Um, fossilized mammoth testicle handled awls that have been dipped in um, a pink resin with sparkles and things like that and it's a ridiculous price but 
usually they're made, and this is my opinion, folks, they're made by people who never got into the trenches, who were never on the front line in making leather goods. They never spent years and years and years honing their craft as a leather craftsperson, then going, mm, the tools on the market aren't quite up to scratch. I think I could do better because I know all the weaknesses in the common tools. I think the ergonomics are off. I think the design is wrong. I want to produce my own and then henceforth and do that. That is a winning formula. But there's many people who started out in leather craft, perhaps realize either they couldn't make money doing it or they weren't that good. But what they did enjoy is collecting tools, buying tools. Then they decided to make one or two, showed it on Instagram. People wanted to order them. And hey, presto, they're now a professional leather craft tool maker. And as time goes by, they start to get more elaborate with the designs. They start to get more elaborate with the materials that they're using, exotic tools, exotic steels, all sorts of things. But they never were on the front line when it comes to creating leather goods. And the telltale signs for this is if you go onto their account and you go through and you see no leather goods that they've actually made. It's usually pictures of other people that may have bought the tools. Perhaps they sent their tools to an influencer and then got the influencer to use their tools and then they use their photos to say, look, they're producing this kind of leather work with my tools. If you go onto an account and you see them, the creators of the tools, showing themselves making leather goods, high quality leather goods, that's usually a good indicator that that person is producing good tools because they know how to do high quality leather work. So that's just one little tip. If you're looking to buy from a tool maker, have a look at their leather work because you need that. And I often say this, people use the word intimacy when it comes to you know a romantic connection with someone. But in order to make high quality tools, you need to have a high degree of intimacy with the medium that you're creating the tool for, in this case, leathercraft. If you'd never have that intimacy, if you've never used multiple different kinds of leather, veg tan, chrome tan, exotic skins, etc., etc., if you've never ended up making, going from wallets to watch straps and bags, and, and you know, you have a very deep kind of mental database of what you're working with, then realistically, and this is my opinion, you have no right making leather craft tools because you don't know what is good you don't have enough experience with leather craft to make high quality tools the unfortunate thing is that these tools are often bought by amateurs so people that have got into leather work they love it it's their passion it gets them away from their day job they look at these tools and they're beautiful they're crafted amazingly and it's very much like, you know, um, very, very flashy fishing lures are designed to catch the fishermen, not the fish. So when you go into a fishing tackle shop, what actually works is usually quite boring. But you see all these, all the marketing, all the flashy colors and sparkles and things that say, oh, this, this is going to catch the biggest bass. Oftentimes, that's not the case. And any experienced fisherman will tell you that. But... The boring stuff that actually works isn't very marketable. That is the issue. So when it comes to craftsmen who are making these tools, they're making them for amateurs. And if you look at, say, some of the top accounts, um, you know, of people that you really respect in the leather industry who are amazing at their craft, absolute grandmasters at leather craft, if you look at them and then study the tools that they're using, you will often see quite boring tools. Sometimes they're vintage tools, because vintage tools, although the steels aren't the best in the world, they're very old, um, you know, they're, they're difficult to come by sometimes, but they were often made by people who had decades of experience in leatherwork, or they produced tools for people who have decades of experience in leatherwork. And if they made a tool that was wrong, that didn't work, those tools just weren't used. You know, it's very much like Blanchard used by still by some, some of the top luxury leather goods companies in the world. It's because they're made 
but people who know what they're doing. I'm not saying that Blanchard are the best, and you know some people have said, and I kind of agree on some of their products, the quality has dropped off. And that might be because they're having to you know, cut corners in order to survive. I mean, I don't need to tell you how many leather tool makers have died off over the years. Barnsley um, in 2003, Joseph Dixon, I think it was either 2006 or th 2008, they're dying off. And sometimes these tool companies, in order just to survive, you know, they need to sell on the mass market as well as these leather goods houses because their tools are lasting forever. I don't think there's a huge turnover in, there, in them. But sometimes they're, they're having to you know, cut corners and I can kind of understand it. doesn't mean it's right, but you can kind of understand where they're coming from. They, they need to survive. So sometimes you will see you know, high quality, very, very talented leather craftsmen using these and I call them Gucci tools. They're, they're kind of, they're form over function. They're meant to look good first and do a job second. Sometimes you will see them because they are either being paid or they were given the tools and that person feels bad. So they'll do a post showing this tool that they're using. But they're not, it's not always a good indicator that that's a good company or a good tool maker to work with. That being said, it is up to you what you buy if it makes you feel good, if you like using it, then by all means use it. But there are always amateur leather crafters who buy these tools, try to use them, struggle to use them, and then just assume that they are the issue. That it's just that they can't use the skiving knife, they're not good at skiving, they're not good at using an awl for stitching. You know, that they just they think that they are the problem in the whole thing in fact they're not it's just the tool that they've bought was made by someone who didn't understand leather craft very well but they could make something that artistically looks amazing so buyer beware i'm not going to name names and there's a lot of them but you need to be aware so just qualify that company or that tool maker first by going onto their account see who's using their tools and i mean regularly not just on a promotional level but also what kind of leather work are they making? Are they able to show pictures where they are actually in the picture making leather goods that are what you consider excellent? If so, then they're good. One who I think is very good, who I was recently uh, just started using his tool is Charter Made. I believe his name's Terek. He is also an exceptional leather craftsman. So that's an example of someone who has been in the trenches. He's been on the front line in leather goods. And for whatever reason, either because he likes it more or he thinks that it's more lucrative, he's gone into tool making. That's his choice. But he is a good leather craftsman. So that's a good indicator that investing in his tools is not a bad idea. Now he's, as I mentioned earlier, using exotic materials and making things look good. He also caters to the market. If people want you know, ivory hand, or not ivory, um, if you people want, say, you know, mammoth tusk handles, or, you know, walrus molars, or whatever, he'll cater for that, you know, he'd be crazy not to, if people want to spend the extra money, and have something bespoke, by all means, you know, it's, he'd be crazy not to produce that, but at the same time, his tools are also good. So, moving on to an example of where I think that someone really understands the craft who then moved into tool making. I recently got a awl, a stitching awl from Rocky Mountain Leather Supply. Now this awl doesn't have a brand name. It has no logo. There's no maker's mark on it. There's nothing. It's a titanium awl. I'm very much, and I've said this in my lives before, I'm very much into function over form. I like to make sure the tool does the job the best first and a very distant second whatever it looks like i don't i really don't care what it looks like if it looks nice um that i'll just put it in instagram photos to make it look more interesting and to show some tools and things like that because it's always good to have more of a a dynamic shot where people can actually see the tools that you use to make the product it makes the post more interesting obviously but i got this all from Rocky Mountain Leather Supply. It's a titanium awl, and I've got it in my hand now. It comes in a just bubble wrap with a cork on the end. 
unused cork, or maybe it was for white wine, I can't really tell. Anyway, so I've got it in my hand, and starting with the blade, just the blade, there's a lot to talk about. One of the issues with, say, Blanchard, or the blade on it is tapered, so it starts thin at the top and gets gradually thicker towards the bottom. Uh, the Japanese oars, on the other hand, are usually a little bit more like a, say, a Roman sword, where it is rounded or potentially sharp on one end, and then it's, it doesn't have a taper, it's straight or the same thickness all the way down to the bottom, and oftentimes it's not even sharp along the sides because it doesn't need to be, because the cutting edge is actually right at the front. This is good because it means it's not depth sensitive. And what I mean by depth sensitive is, on a traditional awl, um, say a Blanchard one, or not to pick on Blanchard, say, uh, what, what else have I got there? Uh, Joseph Dixon awl. The further in that you push the awl into the leather, the larger the hole that you make. So if you're not consistent in the depth that you're pushing the blade into the leather, you will get larger or smaller holes, which will mean not so much of a difference on the face side, on the front side, the hide side, but on the rear, the stitches can start looking different because the holes are larger or smaller. There's an inconsistency there. So whoever designed this all, and I, I found out who it is, and I'll talk about this, this person in a minute. Whoever designed this all uh, that Rocky Mountain Leather Supply sells really knows what they were doing because they have a straight taper for about two-thirds, maybe even three-quarters of the way down. And then it abruptly enlarges about half a millimeter, three-quarters of a millimeter. So it goes from about two millimeter on the width to about 2.5, 2.8 at the top. So if you push it in five millimeters, you get a two millimeter cut. If you push it in 10 millimeters, you get a two millimeter cut. If you push it in 15 millimeters, you get a two millimeter cut. But if you push it all the way in, you get a larger cut, 2.8, I believe it is on here, maybe even just under three. So whoever designed this has an intimate understanding of the difficulties or issues with using a traditional tapered all blade. And another thing that they've done is they have a chisel tip on the end. So it's completely flat. It has a really, really tiny blade, maybe just under a millimeter, and it is flat on the top, like a chisel, like a, a woodworking chisel. And the idea of that is a flat or even rounded end isn't directional in the leather. So if I put this all at the top of the slit made by the pricking iron, it will slide down until the all blade hits the other side of the slit. That pressure is then equalized, and as I push through, it is straight, and it is basically told what to do by the slit made by the pricking iron. If I have a very sharp pointed awl, if I put it at the top of the slit, it will just make a larger slit. It will keep going in that direction because the point digs into the fibers and then tells the rest of the blade where to go. So using a chisel tip like this one from Rocky Mountain Leather Supply or mod even modifying your own awl at home by just snipping off the end of the blade, just the last you know, millimeter of a sharp point, and then sanding it down and then stropping it so it's either like a paddle, it's slightly rounded, or it's a chisel tip like this one. You will get more consistent stitching. So that is just really shows the level of intimacy that this person, whoever designed this all, has with leather tools, uh, specifically all blades. Moving on from that, in the ferrule, which is the metal part, is normally to stop the wood splitting, but in this case it is literally to hold on to, mechanically hold on to the awl blade with a set screw, also called a grub screw in the UK, where you can undo it, remove the blade and put another one in. So if you want several different sizes, then you can exchange the blade and use it that way. Uh, I don't currently know where to get them from. I don't know if Rocky Mountain are going to be supplying these, but it is possible. And I think it's a standard size. I think you could even possibly put a sewing machine needle in for whatever reason you'd want to do that. But there's also a little cutout on the inside of the awl blade, which goes into the awl, 
which means that it indexes at the same angle every single time. Another problem that you will see on traditional awls is usually they're bought separately, the awl blade and the awl haft, and you'll need to set the awl blade into, say, a vise with two pennies either side to, so that you don't mark the awl blade. You then get the wooden hole that's inside the ferrule, and then you use, a, say, a wooden mallet just to tap down the awl handle into the blade. Now, you have to be very careful that you're putting it at the right angle, because if you have it at the wrong angle and you're stitching with it and you hold the awl in the same way every time, the angle of the awl blade isn't going to match up with the angle set out by the pricking iron. But this awl has a workaround. If you undo the top of the awl blade, there's a, a torque screw at the top, you can rotate the ferrule and therefore the blade to the desired angle that you want. And then you do up the torques nut at the top of the awl handle, the awl haft, and you can set it to exactly how you want it. So it doesn't matter how many times you remove the blade, bring another one in, it is always going to be at the correct angle. And if you have a pricking iron with a slightly different angle, you can then rotate it further. The, the next benefit that this person has figured out is there's a relief cut. Now there's usually two reliefs on say a Blanchard awl uh, and none on a Dixon awl, it's just purely round. Uh, there's usually two reliefs at the top and the bottom, and that's where you can index your hand, your fingers, so that you can put your, say, your ring finger onto the little flat spot, and then you know that you are basically anchoring the handle into the same position every single time, and therefore the, the angle of the blade. Now, this is something you see in archery, where somebody will pull back a bow, and they'll pull it back until, say, their middle finger touches the corner of their mouth, and by doing so, they can pull the string back and therefore the arrow to the same place every time, therefore get consistency, thus accuracy. It's no different with this awl blade, but this has one, so that you don't pick it up and you have it upside down. Number two, it doesn't roll around on a table. Number three, it's scalloped, so there's a slight concave to it, which means it's easier to get your finger or the pad of your finger into it the same time same place every single time and there's another thing that's interesting as well is the ferrule on the end of here tapers down to a point that's not much wider than the actual blade itself so that you can actually get this really close to the stitching clams and you're not going to hit the ferrule or your fingers on the stitching clam some ferrules say the dixon one that i have are rather wide so if you have a small piece maybe a a thin strap on a bag or a watch strap for example and you want to have it so that the seam that you're stitching is really close to the top of the clam so that that leather's not moving around especially if it's flexible the all ferrule will start hitting the clam before you get to the depth that you want so that's another thing that is really good about this all now what I'm the point I'm trying to prove here is this is a very good example of where somebody has a very intimate connection with leather. Then they got into tool making. I was contacted by somebody on Instagram, somebody from France who said, is that the Jerome David all? Now Jerome David, uh, for those of you who don't know, produces Saddler's Clams, the, uh, I'm gonna butcher the French language here, the Pince à Coudre. It's basically Saddler's Clams and you hold them off to a slight angle, it's an offset angle. But he produces those, and I actually have his stitching clams. If you see my Instagram account, you may have seen a dark brown mahogany, very shiny uh, looking set of stitching clams. Uh, it has a French polish on it. I wrap the top in alligator with a a uh, <laughs> uh, with a rose gold leaf logo from my uh, my company brand name Finch England. Uh, so. <laughs> Very nice looking set of stitching clams, but they are excellent stitching clams. In my mind, they're much better than the Blanchard versions and almost half the price as well, which is unusual. But he now supplies Hermes and Moina with their stitching clams. And I believe he's also supplying them with other things that he makes. Now, he's an interesting character. After a little bit of research, it appears that he has a background in saddlery, French saddlery. So he's obviously someone who has done this for many, many years and then started making 
his own clams and then obviously somebody said oh I want some too and you know one thing leads to the other he's now a uh, stitching clam entrepreneur but I did hear that he was getting into oils to making oils and I thought oh that'd be really interesting because I really like his clams he obviously really knows what he's doing he's used by some of the most well-respected uh, luxury leather goods makers in the world it'd be interesting to see uh, his oil blade what it's like then I did some digging and it turns out he is the designer and maker of this all. I don't think he actually sells them himself. Um, he relies on other companies like Rocky Mountain Leather Supply. I think there's one in France as well to actually sell his alls. But that is a very, very good indicator that this person has a lot of knowledge. And I knew that it was someone who has a background in traditional leather work because looking at this all, there's no way this was designed with form first. This is definitely a function all, but it looks gorgeous at the same time. And I'm okay with that. I'm <laughs> very much okay with that. It feels amazing in the hand. It's light because it's the metal is made from titanium. It just feels so nimble. It's like it was made for my hand and going back to any other all now is just completely ruined for me. I think this is it for the rest of my career. This is this is what it's going to be. But uh, another thing that's really interesting, and I'll I'll shut up about this all in a second. I just love it so much. Another thing is he uses hardwoods from the region that he comes from, um, which is around the Jura region, which is mid eastern France, uh, not far from Alsace, and he gets wood from these areas, and that is one of my favorite parts in the world. I love Jura, the mountains, the forests, it's very big into the skiing and that kind of thing, but the the countryside around there is beautiful and having um, some beautiful, uh, looks like a, a burled wood dark in uh, nature, it, it's just, it's so nice having something from a region that speaks to me emotionally. I mean, every time that me and my partner, we go on to uh, a European tour, uh, we always have to go through the Jura region because it is just so gorgeous and it's just so pleasing to have a piece of that in my hand. Uh, and the same goes for his stitching clams as well. Um, you Again, you can actually get them on Rocky Mountain Leather Supply. It's, in, it's not the Blanchard ones, it's the other ones. I believe they have a folded one and it's just pure, I think it's boxwood. I could be wrong, but I think it's Boxrug, and it comes from that region of France. It is gorgeous. Um, and it's amazing how a tool can just speak to you emotionally. I'm looking at this tool, and I'm understanding the craftsman, um, having an emotional connection to the area that the handle comes from. It's weird how tools can do that. You know, I'm very much function over form, but there's always an emotional connection with tools. You know, there's just one that you've had for years, and if somebody, somebody were to steal it from you, you'd probably want to cry. Not because it's irreplaceable, it is replaceable, but you just get a connection with these tools and it's a strange psychology. Um, but another thing, I'll move on from the all now, another thing that I got was the Charter-made skiving knife. Odd looking knife. I didn't know whether I'd like it or not. It has a, um, a strange curve to the end of it, and uh, but it, it really works well. It's the original one. Um, that he made. It's, it's not one of the fancier ones or the newer ones. It's the original one I, I, he came out with. And it has um, has a blade on the end. It's uh, a double bevel blade, not a single bevel like most skiving knives. But what he's done is he's got a hollow grind on it. And I've never used a skiving knife with a hollow grind, which means the first bevel on the blade is slightly concave and it really gets underneath the leather really well I love it I, I didn't know if I'd like it or not but using it instantly you can also tell that this is somebody who knows what the fuck they're doing um you know <laughs> it, there's no way around it this person the person who designed this has worked with leather for a long time and as a craftsman who's worked with leather for a long time as soon as you start using it regardless of what it looks like you just go, ah, yes, of course, yes, that makes sense. And you know that somebody who knows what the hell they're doing has made it. And that's really what I look for in tools. Um, 
that's all I'm going to say about that. It's uh, that's also available on Rocky Mountain Leather Supply. Um, not to keep plugging them, but that's where I got the whole. Uh, I got a lot of products from them. And I will talk about another thing that's that's bugging me. And this is this is more of the controversial thing. So I talked about tool makers who make pretty tools that don't work targeted towards people that really don't have a lot of experience. But the, the real controversial thing that I'm going to talk about today is something that I posted on my other Instagram account. So I have my, my professional Instagram account uh, for my leather goods that I produce for people that want to buy my leather goods. That's Finch England, at Finch England on Instagram. I'm very much an Instagram advocate. The account that I have for my courses and my teaching is, of course, the Leathercraft Masterclass. So if you're listening to this, you're, that's uh, probably where you've come from. But I also have the Golden All Club. The Golden All Club, at Golden All Club, is a place where people who are paid subscribers of the Leathercraft Masterclass who are buying the videos, it's somewhere where I can go and talk about what's in the videos or talk about an extension of the video or add something that I didn't talk about in the video or I can openly discuss with members what goes on in the videos and they can ask further questions about what they've seen in the videos uh, eventually I'm going to be doing lives once I get to 100 subscribers um, or 100 followers sorry on the Golden Ore Club then I'm going to be doing lives and that way I can kind of interact with people about what's inside the course because I don't do that on the Leathercraft Masterclass because I'm not going to be talking about the information within the courses because there's people that are paying for that privilege and then there's me just openly talking about it and it wouldn't be fair but the Golden Ore Club is for paid subscribers who are interested in in further communicating about what's in the courses and exchanging more advanced ideas and that's the idea of the Golden Ore Club community but there was a post that I did on there that got a lot of comments, a lot of people questioning whether or not I was right, which is a good thing. It's always good to question things, absolutely. Um, a lot of disappointed people, uh, me being one of them. I mean, the post was about Chinese linen thread, okay? So you may have noticed that in the past few months, maybe in the past year or so, that there have been several threads coming out from China where they are strong, they're consistent, they're smooth, they don't vary in thickness, they don't have any nodes or, you know, random thick spots uh, that stick out. They don't randomly break. Some people have issues with traditional linen thread breaking it's usually pulling a little bit too hard on veg tan with thread that's a little too thin, but not always, but not always. Um, but they've come out with these linen threads from China and they're just absolutely perfect in almost every way. And they are a fantastic price. Some of them, some of them are quite expensive, but some of them are an absolutely fantastic price. Easy to get hold of, um, quick to ship. Oftentimes it's free shipping yada 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 they're great threads i've used them okay they're fantastic the first thing that i thought was strange was the fact that it's really difficult to push a saddler's needle through the thread so when you're locking in the thread um to a saddle stitch to hand stitch it's quite challenging and i've even had people come to me saying hi you know um, i'm having trouble getting the needle through the thread and i was like well you can you know hold it squeeze it between your nails so it holds still and you can you know uh, thread it that way or you can press it down against the table and push it through the thread into the table and then lift the thread up and then do that again to to lock it in twice and i got to thinking why you know i've never seen a linen thread where it's been difficult to push a needle through i mean what is it it's it's twisted pieces of flax retwisted again i.e cabled with uh wax usually beeswax um, there's nothing that was would resist a needle being pushed through that. So why is it these Chinese linen threads are, are so challenging to get a needle through? And I thought the only other thread that I can think of 
that is difficult to push a needle through is some forms of bonded thread. And I thought, that's interesting. So this is a bonded thread. So they've, they've got flax. Um, they've managed to find a way that no one else has ever found to get a really fine finish. And then they've bonded it. They're twisted, retwisted, i.e. cabled. And they've bonded it. And it's produced this wonderfully smooth thread. And then I got to think, I wonder if, because no one else has ever managed to get flax to be as flawless as that, I wonder if they're using another kind of fiber and then bonding it to get a thread that consistent. So I did some research and I thought, I wonder if it's cotton. So I got online, I started looking for bonded cotton, blah, 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 and I found one website, a very famous UK company. Um, they actually own Barber's, Barber Linen Thread, and they are Coats, C-O-A-T-S, Coats. They produce a thread called Coats Looks, L-O-O-K-S, and you can look it up, Coats Looks. It's designed for leatherwork. It's made of cotton, long staple cotton, so something we would know as uh, Egyptian cotton, for example, is long staple cotton. And it's bonded, and it's designed for leather work. Now, the difference between cotton and flax, they are both cellulose-based fibers, and cellulose is a, a natural material. Wood is, is essentially cellulose. It's both cellulose-based, but the difference is Flax fibers are very, very long, which is why they're used in leather work, because it makes them very strong. But they are very coarse. If you take a cross-section of flax, for example, it's rather jagged and various, it's quite random in its sizes. When you look at cotton, for example, it's more rounded. It's also a thinner fiber, which means you can make finer threads, which are usually more consistent. And the issue with, with uh, flax fibers is you also get nodes on them so, and the nodes are basically thick pieces and when you get bundle, bundles of nodes together uh, for whatever reason uh, you can get various inconsistencies within your linen thread so I thought I wonder if these Chinese linen threads are advertising that their linen by the way linen isn't a natural fiber linen is just a name because Usually it's flax. Um, there are some other threads that are also, I don't know if it's, it's legal, um, but legally regarded as a uh, linen thread. I think rami is one of them. Um, I can't remember if it's that one or another one that's actually made from cactus, which fits the definition of linen, but cotton isn't linen. You can have cotton bed linen, but then linen is a different definition in that case, um, which is you know just sheets of material. Um, but moving back into the subjects, I was wondering whether or not these Chinese companies are producing long staple cotton bonded threads, then advertising them to the world as linen thread, traditional, natural, waxed linen thread. So I thought the only way to find out is to dissect it. Well, how do you dissect something that's so heavily bonded you can barely get a needle through it? I mean, this thing is, a bonding agent is basically adhesive. If I got any thread in the world, just say regular machine cotton thread, and I got, say, a 50-50 PVA and water mix on a sponge, and then I pull the thread through it, and then I let the thread dry, that thread is now bonded thread. Okay, so that just so you know what bonding means, it's basically a liquid adhesive that goes into the thread, and it glues the fibers together. So in the case of cotton, it will make it stronger because the issue with cotton is the short threads, and they're usually only uh, you know a couple of centimeters long, they can slip past each other. So when you break cotton apart, you're not always breaking the fibers, you're actually pulling them past each other. So they're coming apart by unraveling. If you have a longer fiber, such as flax, used in traditional linen thread, barbers, Campbell's, coats, uh, for example, they're longer. So it's more likely it's going to have to snap and break before failure. With cotton, cotton is well, essentially the same fiber makeup. So cotton isn't weaker than flax, 
it's just a shorter fiber. So inherently, it is weaker because it will slip past itself when twisted into a thread. Now, the only way to get by that so that they don't slide past each other when being pulled is to glue them to each other, i.e. bonding. So, I thought to myself, the only way to unravel this heavily bonded thread is to get a solvent that doesn't damage cellulose fibers, but it will dissolve whatever adhesive is bonding them all together. So I left a sample of this so-called Chinese linen thread in a particular solvent overnight, and the next day I started to untwist the three bundles, and then once I separated one out, I then untwisted that one too kept adding solvent to make sure because the adhesive actually I could feel it on my fingers it was sticking my fingers together as the solvent started to dry so you could tell that there was an adhesive on there I then started to pull apart some very short strands very unfortunate now these strands weren't individual fibers the fibers are so fine that it is unlikely to be flax it is more consistent with cotton thread so although I was pulling apart you know, two and a half, you know, three centimeter pieces, which is really too short for flax. It should be several inches. The bundles were coming apart just so easily. And if I kept pulling them and pulling them apart, they'd probably be more consistent with either regular cotton or long staple cotton, which is just a little bit longer than regular cotton. So unfortunately, it appears that there are several Chinese companies coming out. I don't know if it's all from the same manufacturer, and whether or not they actually even know some of these resellers uh, who put their own brand name on them, they are coming out with what appears to be, in my opinion, bonded cotton thread. Now, does this mean it's bad? Not necessarily. Not necessarily, and here's why. It is very strong. Cotton that's been bonded is very strong. It doesn't slip past itself, regardless of how thin, if the bonding agent is good. And in this case, it appears to be. It's very, very strong. But as time goes by, as the years go on, you have to understand that the Achilles heel of these Chinese threads is going to be how long does the bonding adhesive last? Does it react negatively? Is it weakened by any of the chemicals that it, will, it may come across in inside leather, depending on the tanning? Is it weakened by any of the solvents inside uh, certain leather creams or leather finishes, such as beeswax finishes that contain turpentine? Is the bonding agent that they're using UV sensitive, like some are? Does it break down with sunlight? Then essentially what's going to happen is if it does break down for whatever reason, if it doesn't stand the test of time, then you are left with regular cotton holding your leather goods and your leather goods may have your name on it together. So it's really up to you whether you continue using it. For me, I've stopped using it. I use alternatives. I'm a big fan of uh, cabled waxed polyester. Um, buy some of these same Chinese companies. It, it is very good. I mean, polyester, um, you don't really need to fake that. It's not an expensive uh, thread to make. And, you know, it's, it's up to you what you use, but I believe that most people are being conned. It is not real flax linen thread. It is not a traditional thread. And if you're using it for traditional purposes, well, then you may have to rethink why you're using it. So that is the... And another thing um, I forgot to mention, as soon as I posted that, there was a craftsman, a leather craftsman, a uh, very good one, I talk to him quite a lot actually, on Instagram, who knows a Russian supplier of threads, who imports threads and supplies them in Russia, who also did this experiment. Uh, I don't know if it was the exact experiment, experiment or if he did it in the same way or whatever, but his conclusion was also the same conclusion as mine, that they're using bonded cotton thread. It is not flax. And they don't say flax anywhere. That's another interesting thing. The only company, and I'm not going to name them, but you may know them. There is one company out there who I believe have a bigger foothold in the Western world, in Europe and the States. 
where they actually advertise that they use cotton in their linen thread, which is an unusual thing to do because most leather crafters, you know, even amateur leather crafters know that cotton is unsuitable for stitching leather because it's inherently weaker. So I emailed them, I DM'd them, and eventually I put a post, not a post, I commented on their post where they showed some thread spools and then mentioned that they have a blended cotton and linen thread. I asked them outright, why have you added cotton? What are the features and benefits? And email, they didn't email me back. With regards to the DM, they never DM me back, uh, even though I could see that they looked at it. And they didn't reply. They didn't delete it, though, but they didn't reply to my comment on their Instagram post about the inclusion of cotton. Because if there's if there's something, if they came out and said, look, here's linen thread with flax, here's a, a strength test, a tensile strength test, and here's one with the cotton, and it's exactly the same, but the benefits of cotton are we can produce a finer thread, less inconsistencies, it knots up less, uh, it's smoother, there's no variations in thickness, you know, all these kind of things. If you came out with some features and benefits, I would be sold on it. I wouldn't go, oh, it's got cotton on it. If it's better, it's better. But silence often speaks volumes, and that's why I wouldn't buy that particular thread. If you know who I'm talking about and what I'm talking about, if you want to send and you have it, feel free to send me a sample, a couple feet, and that should be enough. And I will dissect the thread and see if there are any long threads in it, which would indicate that we're working with flax as well. But in my opinion, what they've done is they've admitted to using some cotton in their thread. So if somebody does dissect their thread and find short fibers in there and tries to oust them or tries to expose them then they can go well we did say that we put cotton in there i think it's a preventative measure in case something like this happens but i'm not going to name names if you know who i'm talking about great if you don't my opinion stick to linen threads made by Chinois, by campbell's by coats by somac or barber, which uh, barber aren't really producing anymore. They got swallowed by coats. So uh, essentially, if you use theirs, then that's absolutely fine. So that is my opinion. And just remember, it's my opinion. I'm sorry if uh, you do have uh, an entire collection of these kind of threads. It's, you know, a couple of people have approached me and be very disappointed. But remember, it's my opinion and I encourage you to do the same test. If you find different results, please let me know. But these are my opinions. And just remember, that's all it is, is just opinions. But when they did come out, it was all of a sudden. I mean, if you look at it this way, you've got these European companies. Some of them are hundreds of years old. They have been producing flax longer than anybody in China producing threads, wax linen threads for leatherwork. They've been producing it for so long. Do you not think that it's a little bit fucking strange that the Chinese managed to almost overnight come out with a cure for all the problems associated with natural flax linen thread? And the fact that None of the European countries producing flax linen thread have changed the way they do things. They haven't said anything. They haven't come out with opinions. They haven't done anything. They're just continuously doing what they do best. And I think they're just waiting it out until everybody suddenly realized that they're working with phony thread. So I hope that hasn't left you with uh, <laughs> negative feelings um, this was meant to be a, a more of an interesting podcast for people and to give you something to think about. It doesn't mean these linen, so-called linen threads from China are bad. It just means that if you are using them, you are trusting that whatever adhesive that they're using in the threads is going to last as long as you want your leather goods to last. 
And that's what I will leave you on. And if you have any questions as normal, please feel free to contact me. And also I have a course coming out tomorrow, in fact, uh, it is the last installment of the Leathercraft Masterclass Luxury Watch Straps series. So the manufacturer of Luxury Watch Straps, the third installment is coming out. It's a 50 minute long video and it's the final part. And I discuss uh, how to stitch in a keeper, fixed keeper, how to stitch and finish a running keeper, and also how to navigate from stitching one side of a watch strap on the buckle side over to the other side with two binding over stitches and one length of thread which is quite difficult to do but i explain it in the course if you are interested in the course the 999 model means that you can get all the courses currently available and all future courses as long as you stay on the subscription for 999 a month tomorrow with the inclusion of the third installment it will be 12.99 obviously the costs associated with these courses are going up the next course I'm coming out with is hot foil stamping. So that's a rather expensive investment. So the course prices is going up, but whatever model you start with is what you stay on forever. So if you are currently listening to this and you're thinking what the course prices are going up, they're not going up for you. They're staying at $9.99 a month and it will always be so regardless of what the price ends up as further down the line. So if you are interested and you've been on the fence about whether or not to join, now will be a good time to join, folks. So tomorrow's course is being released. So if you want it at a cheaper price, if you want it at a higher value price, then now will be a good time to subscribe. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for listening to my opinions. If you have any questions on the tools that I've discussed in this podcast as well, feel free to contact me. Uh, you can go via email. I always respond quicker to DMs usually. Uh, I get a lot of DMs depending on what uh, I've put out there content-wise during the day. Sometimes I get 10, 15 DMs a day and sometimes I get you know over 30, 40 DMs with all sorts of questions. So that is a quicker way to, uh, to get hold of me. But if I don't get back to you uh, on the same day, I do apologize. I have a lot of questions to get through. But... Saying that, don't let that stop you. If you have any questions about the tools or you want some advice or you know you want to buy one of these tools but you're not sure about something or whether, whether or not it's right for you or if you want to buy a tool from an artisan and you want to know whether or not I think it's a good tool, again, shoot me a DM and I will get back to you. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast and it will be business as usual next Friday at 6 o'clock. Be there or be square.